of uh, so a week ago, on Sunday morning, uh, some of you, if you were at the family meeting, you heard about this, but it's all I've been talking about for a week, so I'm a pretty self-absorbed guy. Um, I walked out of my front door, got all ready to go to church, I woke up, I got ready, I did my three hours of uh, silent devotion, no prayer time, and then I, uh, which is just sleeping, and then I, and then I got up, and I um, went out my front door to get in my car, and there was no car. My car was gone. And I was like, well, I don't have that big of a, of a driveway. I know it's not in the garage. My car got stolen. Sure enough, my car had been stolen uh, the night before. I, uh, you know you're kind of like, I don't know what this says about me, but you're at, this, you're at a place in your life where you don't get angry right away. You're just kind of like, Ugh, I don't want to deal with this. That's the first thing I thought. Now I got to deal with this, right? So I texted Pastor Matt. I said, come get me. He did not. I texted Pastor Dave, and he came and got me, of course, because uh, he's amazing, um, and, uh, and brought me to church. Um, and uh, I eventually, we like filed a police report and everything, and that night, I actually went over to my neighbor's house after our family meeting that we had, and they had footage. They had video footage of, of a guy at 9.45 on Saturday night back my car out of our driveway and push it down the street out of our cul-de-sac. It was a cul-de-sac, too. I mean, stuff like this doesn't happen on cul-de-sacs. There's like a, there's a guarantee when you buy a house on a cul-de-sac that you will not have your car stolen. <sighs> the people that sold us our house kind of didn't disclose, I think, what the neighborhood was really like. Um, so we, uh, so I got, um, I, I was feeling depressed and I, uh, I was feeling pretty bummed out because this car, we bought it right when we got married, uh, and it was kind of our first kid, and um, it's, it's pretty old now. It's like 15 years old, and you're like doing the math, going, when did you guys get married? But don't worry about that. We, uh, we, we were planning for a while on, you know, if, we, uh, if the car, you know, eventually died, then we would kind of get something else. So I uh, was still feeling pretty down about it, and, uh, and then I went on Craigslist and started looking, and I found... I found something. I want to show you guys what I found. I found this, which kind of changed everything. What precision-built truck is also America's most popular value? What truck offers precise fits and finishes and a wider range of electronic fuel-injected engines? Ford trucks, the best ever It's Ford Ranger, the precision-built truck that's widening the sales gap every day. The best-built, best-selling American trucks are built Ford Tough. I saw, I saw this truck, the 1992 Ford Ranger, the truck I've always wanted. Uh, I'm often picking Ellie up um, on, like, freeway overpasses and stuff. She's, like, running to the car, you know, in a dress. So I was like, yeah, that would be perfect. Um, no, the 92 Ranger is just old enough that when I was in high school, uh, this was like the newest car that anyone in my high school probably had was like a 92. It was like four or five years old. Um, and uh, there were a couple guys that had pickups. And I will tell you, I never, ever experienced jealousy as like an all-consuming force uh, like I did when Mitch McDowell pulled up in his new Ford Ranger in front of the wrestling uh, room. And... Uh, and he was like, yeah, my dad just got a settlement or something, and we got a new Ranger, you know? It had air conditioning, it had a tape player, and, uh, and it had, uh, it was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and I was like, man, I wish I could drive that truck. Well, now I can't, because they had one on Craigslist. And so I bought it, 
And I was so excited, and I brought it here to church the day that I bought it, and I pulled it up, and I, I, I ran inside. I parked it under the overhang, which is where I'm probably just going to park now. Um, and, uh, and, and Matt, I went and got Pastor Matt, and I was like, check it out. And he walked out, and he was just like, oh, you, this is the truck, is what he said. This is the truck? I said, yeah, it's the truck. And he was like, I can't believe you bought this truck, you know. I can't believe anybody paid money for this truck, is what he said. He started looking over it pretty carefully. And if I had to describe how he was looking over it, I'd say it was maybe um, as a person who had maybe never used their hands to, to you know, really do anything uh, physical in their life. Because he, he was very intimidated by the crack in the windshield, which was one of those little chips that they fix for free when you're pumping your gas, you know. And, uh, and he's like, there's a crack in the windshield. It's a crack windshield. You bought a car with a crack windshield? You know, the, the headliner was kind of hanging down. He's like, I would have seen that headliner and I would have just walked away right then. And, uh, and he was like, uh, and, and, then, and then he, uh, and then Justin, I went and got Justin. I was like, Justin's going to be excited. He has a truck, you know. And Justin came out, and Justin was like, whoa, what is this, you know? <laughs> and he was like, look at, how, look at how old it is, look at how small it is, look at how dirty it is. Like, I can't believe this. This is really the truck you bought. What are you thinking? And then he was like, they were, they were, both of them basically were like, there's not even anywhere for your kids to sit. They're going to hate this truck. I was like, yes, there is. There's like a back seat right there. Like, there's no seats in it. I said, yes, there are. They fold down. They're called jump seats. They said, your kids aren't going to like that. I was like, do you know anything about kids at all? Because my kids are going to love that. Because they can pull down their seats. They can face each other, which means they can fight way more easily, which they did. <laughs> Normally, it takes like a good solid ride from our house to the end of 213 before our kids are physically fighting. And this was like our house to Bymar, which is like two blocks. They were like hitting each other. And when we got out of the car, she said, Tegan broke my arm, and now I have to go to the hospital because he didn't. But uh, that'd be another story. So I, I'm like, you guys, you guys have no idea what you're talking about, you know? Uh, and they don't. They don't, obviously, because it's the coolest truck ever. And, uh, and everyone else I've showed it to has said how cool it is. And uh, I, I, I was like, my, and Ellie loves it. She thinks it's so cool. She drove it, and she was like, I love this truck. I love how it smells. I love what it feels like to drive it, you know? I love how old and solid it is. I was like, yes, 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 right? This truck is awesome. And I was so excited to walk out my front door this morning and get in my truck, which I did because it was still there. Because you can't push this truck, you can't push this truck down the street, and if you start this truck, it wakes everybody up, right? Which I'm sure it did when I left to come to church this morning. Um, I, I say all of this, apart from being self-absorbed, like I said, because it's funny how, like, really honestly, when this happened, I thought every person that sees this is going to fall as in love with this truck as I am, but they don't, and it amazes me. And then I realize, but the way that people are is uh, we basically have different things that we really value, right? We have different things that we see in stuff, and we say, to me, if I'm going to go buy a car, it's going to look like this, it's going to be like this, and it's going it's to even cost this much, right? Like, why would anyone buy a car for, like, less than this amount of money or something? 
Uh, and then there are other people that will look at a car uh, like this one and they'll say, oh, I like things that, you know, have, like are old or they have like character or they kind of smell a certain way or, or, you know, when you shut the door, it feels like it weighs like 6,000 pounds, right? I like that for some reason, even if I'm paying gas to drive around that 6,000 pound door, you know? Like, I, 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 this is so the way that we are, that we all have different things that we look at and we say, that's better, that's worse. In fact, that's what it kind of is to value something, is to put a level of worth on something. And what we're talking about in this series, when we talk about this idea of life upside down, is we're talking about that very thing, about values, about the things that we use to determine what our life's going to look like and where those direct us. This morning, when we, as we start this series, we're going to talk really generally about this idea of life itself, what it would look like to live a life that's upside down, and then in the next couple weeks, we're going to look at more specific things. Um, if you have a Bible, you could open it to Matthew chapter 5, because we're going to be in uh, what's called the Beatitudes. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we look at, at this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at uh, what it looks like to have a, a set of values that are a reflection of the kingdom of God. And I'll put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. It's going to be uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 is what we're going to look at. Matthew 5, 3 through 12 says this. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can stop right there. So here, as I said, Jesus is talking about values. The reason he's talking about them is because life is determined by what we value. Uh, as I said before, our, our life really is, what it means for us to live this life is for us to live out the things that we think are the most important things and to not focus on, not spend time on, or living out the things that we think are not very important. We divide ourselves up by, into, into groups of people by our values um, we're not always in control, as control of these values as we think that we are. Um, as Ellie and I are, uh, are raising kids, we're thinking a lot about values in a way that we didn't think about when we were just living lives for ourselves. Uh, the dictionary defines a value as primarily two things. The first, the importance, worth, or usefulness of something. So the value of something is the importance or the worth or the usefulness of it. Something's value is that. You can, you, can, uh, you can find something valuable monetarily, like it's worth a lot of money, or you can find it meaningful or significant. You can have that kind of worth that you place on it. So there could be something that's worth a lot of money that you don't find very valuable, like, for me, a car. Um, and there's something that is worth very little money that you find very valuable and worthwhile, like, for me, a car. Um, 
The other definition of it is a person's principles or standards of behavior, one's judgment of what is important in life. So the things that we think are important in life, they determine our, our standards of behavior, the way people ought to be, right? This is the value thing that we're most familiar with when it comes to living our lives. I talk to a lot of people who, when they have kids, they start coming to church because they start evaluating, oh, you know, we want to have something to teach these kids, to show these kids. Maybe we didn't feel like we needed values, but, uh, but we feel like they do. A lot of us really appreciate and like the values that we were raised with, and so we want to pass those on to other people. And we, we feel like uh, everything that's good in the world is maybe because of those values that other people have, and everything that's wrong with the world is basically wrong because there are people who live for other sorts of values. Then there are those of us who maybe grew up not liking some of the values we had. We, we want to kind of instill different ones or other ones into, in, into the children that we're raising and people like that. But it determines where we go in our life. There are some primary, like, sort of big ones that you see in most people's lives. The first one I'd say is love. Uh, for a lot of people, relationships and mattering to someone else and people that matter to you is a big value in your life. Uh, people are important. Relationships are important. And so the idea of that is not just I care about other people, but it's very important to me that other people care about me. Right? If I knew at some point that going through my life, that if I stopped and looked and there were not people that really cared about me, that needed me, that loved me, I would feel pretty empty. I'd have a pretty hard time because that's a huge value to me. And uh, some people uh, are, in a sense, what this does is it can kind of make you dependent on people. Right? You need people to need you. You need people to love you, just like you need to have people to love in order for you to feel like your life is, is worth anything. Then, and then there are others who don't care about that value as much. Uh, I've talked to some people who um, they kind of just isolate themselves by choice because they're like, I don't really need people or relationships or things like that to feel good about my life. I know some people who really, really want that and they don't have it and they feel totally empty because of it. For other people, a huge value is achievement. The idea that I need to build something, I need to create something, I need to do something with myself at any given point in my life so that I know that there's a reason that I'm even here, right? I wanna know that I actually am making a difference in this universe, in this planet. I wanna know that I'm doing something that matters. I'm giving my time to something that matters, something that might even outlast me one day. To prove that my existence is worthwhile, and so I want to build something, and I want to make something, and I want to be known for something. There's some who would say that a value is recognition, respect. I want others to know me, to respect me, to look up to me, to admire me, to want to follow me. There's some who, uh, what's interesting is one of, the, one of the most, like, one of the best books I ever read on relationships was out of, a, it was taken, kind of written out of Ephesians, and um, it was uh, called, it's called Love and Respect, and it basically says, women primarily seem to long for love, and men long for respect, and so in Ephesians where it says, husbands, love your wives, wives, respect your husbands, and it asked this question in the book that was like, it's like a really interesting question to kind of ask as a couple of each other, you know, it'll ask a woman, you know, do you ever worry that your husband doesn't respect you enough, and most of the time she'd say no, uh, and it's asked the husband, do you ever worry that your wife doesn't love you enough? He's like, uh, no, not really worried about that, right? 
But what do husbands worry about? What do they struggle with? Is if they feel like their wife doesn't respect them enough because they value that, right? And, and, and there's a lot of wives that struggle wondering, does my husband really love me as much as he used to, as much as he says that he does? Um, because they value that deeply. We have different things that we care about that we value depending on who we are. One of the biggest ones, if we're really honest, is simply pleasure. I mean, I don't just mean liking pleasure. I mean, we value it. We say, like, what is a life? A life is not worth living that is not filled with a certain amount of pleasure and happiness and joy, right? Uh, live, laugh, love. There it is, summed up, right? Live, laugh, and love, right? That is what we want. That's what we want for ourselves, what we want for our families, what we want for our children and their children. If we grew up feeling that way, then it's something that we want to pass on to other people. Uh, it's a pretty big value for many of us that life actually be enjoyable and pleasurable. Now, there's all kinds of different theories on like where these things come from, where these values come from that people have. There's secular theories, there's Christian theories. One really well-known secular sociologist named Peter Berger, he wrote a book called uh, The Sacred Canopy about religion and its role in society. And he says this about people. He says, unlike the other higher mammals who are born with an essentially completed organism, man is curiously unfinished at birth. And what he means when he says that is that man spends the first year or so of his life still being finished as an organism, but doing so out in a world with other people. And so because of that, the values and things socially are as much a part of us as like our blood and our, and our brain and our bones and our muscles, right? And that's why everybody who's a person has these inherent things in them. Now, now, the Bible would tell us, the Bible says to us that God who creates man in his own image creates us as a reflection of him. And so we have these things that we care about because God has things that he cares about. And these things are inherent in all, in all people, you know? Uh, because, you know, we're relational. You know, we care about doing things with our lives and our time because God creates us and says, go and cultivate the earth, right? These are things that we feel compelled to do. But regardless, these values are assumed. We assume them. We don't really think about them. We don't really debate them or talk about them. The most important things in our lives, and by important, I mean the things that determine the most about our lives, are the things we don't talk about, are the things that we don't want to have discussions about, the things that are never up for consideration, right? The givens in our lives. That's why it's so hard to talk about spiritual things in the Bible every week on a Sunday morning if, like, the most important things really about us are the things that never never pop into our mind, never get evaluated, never get looked at. Why? Because everyone around us thinks those things and feels those things, or because we just chose to do them and said, like, there's nothing that will ever change my mind in this way. Regardless, the majority of values that we experience are the values of a life that is lived sort of right side up. And what I mean by that is this, it's normal. It's what everybody around us does. But what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is he is pointing out a different set of these things, and he is saying that a person who is this way is blessed. And blessed is this word makarios. Maker comes from this word. What it means is happy because your circumstances are good, favorable. You will be happy 
if you do these things. But then he lists off a whole bunch of things that no one wants. No one wants to mourn. No one wants to have to be merciful. No one wants to suffer. No one wants to be meek. No one wants these things that he's pointing out, and yet he says the person who is this way is blessed. They're happy. The circumstances of their life are good, and they'll be happy as a result of it. Why? Because he's talking about a kingdom, a totally different kingdom, and it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a geographic place. It's anywhere, and anywhere that God's reign and his rule exists in the life of a person. So if God is the ruler of my life, the king of my life, then the kingdom of God exists within my life. I am living in the kingdom of God. I'm a part of God's kingdom. And I can be standing right next to a person who is not a part of God's kingdom because he is not ahead of their life. What Jesus teaches about throughout his ministry is he describes the kingdom of God. He uses parables. He uses sermons. He uses physical like examples and pictures to show people what the kingdom of God is like so they'll understand it on even an abstract level and here what he says is he says the values of the kingdom of God are these but the problem is it's so radically different from the assumed set of values that we start out with that the people around us have that the only way to adequately describe it is to say it is a completely upside down kingdom. It is a completely upside down life. It is not a little tweaked to one side. It's not like a 90 degree angle of life. It is a reversal because it seems to actually go as far as to be the opposite of many of the values that we live our lives for. So the claim he's making is a big one. He's saying if you have these values driving your life, you will be blessed. You'll be happy. He'll even go on to say that you'll be satisfied. The pattern of this upside-down kingdom is reversing the values in regard to the world. In other words, Christians, he says, are no longer controlled by the things that the world thinks is so critical. We're not controlled by power or success. We're not controlled by comfort or recognition. We're not controlled by these things because they're not the values that dictate our lives. Jesus goes through these beatitudes, we call them. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is someone who's in need of God. They recognize that they are empty in spirit. There's nothing. They see themselves as like a vessel, and God's got to fill me up. And so he's saying, blessed is the person who approaches God with themselves in their life at all times, saying, I am empty. I need you. You fill me up. If I don't approach God recognizing that I'm empty without him, then I can't be filled by him. If I approach God thinking, now I'm fine, now I'm good, it's been a while, I'm mature, I've got something spiritually to offer, people look up to me, I've got responsibilities, I'm doing okay, then I'm not poor in spirit. I'm relying on myself. And I won't be filled up by God if that's the case. So blessed are the poor in spirit, the people that come to God and say, I've got nothing to offer you, which believe it or not, is not really what most people would like to think of themselves as. In every situation, at every time, when I look at myself, one of the things I know is true of myself is that I have nothing to offer spiritually that isn't God. I have nothing to offer spiritually that isn't Jesus. 
That's what fills me up. I am poor in spirit without him. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Well, that sounds fun, right? Yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's live our lives in anticipation of mourning, because mourning is fun, right? Mourning is a good thing. No. Mourning is the opposite of what we want to do, which is celebrate, right? Who doesn't want their life to be filled with celebration? Who wants to ever deal with mourning? And yet Jesus says, those who mourn are blessed because they'll be truly comforted. Why? Because those people are ultimately mourning the things that can be taken from them, that they can lose. And if you mourn those things now, you are going to be comforted because you're not going to have to mourn those things later. Because we will all have to mourn those things eventually. And it's better to be somebody who recognizes, and, and mourning doesn't just apply to like looking at the circumstances of my life. Mourning applies to looking at the world and being like, I don't look at this world and think, this is awesome. I look at this world and I'm like, ugh, yikes, right? But it's not just one group of people that I think that about. It's not just one country that I think that about. It's not just one era or one time that I think that about. I think the world itself, all of it, every person, I mourn that. He says, you'll be comforted, but this is a value. Blessed are the meek. Meekness, also a really fun thing to have. Meekness is basically saying, I'm not going to put myself first. I'm not going to push myself out there. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to speak up in a way that will basically make my needs more important than yours. But the one thing that is true of each and every one of us in our lives is I will worry about me, you worry about you. I mean, I'm teaching this to my kids right now. You worry about yourself. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about her. Don't worry about him. You worry about yourself. That's like a universal truth. And here's why I like worrying about myself, because then you can worry about yourself and they can worry about themselves. And I'm not great at math, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot more people out there than right here. So if I defend me, if I stand up for me, if I speak for me, then I don't have to worry about anybody else. The meek are those who don't take that posture. Blessed are the meek. Now, uh, can you think of a kingdom that says that the people who are meek, who are quiet, who are not defending themselves, will get further, will do better? No. This is completely opposite the way that we believe things work. We believe that if you don't fight for it, if you don't defend it, if you don't stand up for it, then you won't ever have anything of worth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for food, not for water, not for stuff, not for money, not for comfort, but hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because you will be satisfied. You'll be filled up of that thing, whereas all those other things you won't actually be filled with ultimately. Blessed are the merciful. To be merciful to someone is so hard to do because it ultimately means I'm not going to hold you to the rules that I'm holding myself to. And that just doesn't seem very fair, right? I mean, if I've got to live by this rule, if I've got to live this way, then you've got to live this way. And mercy is, is not something that I need to show people. 
We're not expected in the society in which we live to show mercy to people. And yet Jesus says, that's a value in my kingdom. And those who are merciful will be blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are not physically trying to be a certain way, but are first and foremost looking within themselves and saying, what is going on here in my heart? Those people are blessed. What is going on in here matters more than the things that you're accomplishing and doing outwardly and with your life. Blessed are those who persevere for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who suffer persecution. Those sound super fun, right? Persevering, persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Awesome, right? Great sales pitch, Jesus. I'm on board with this and very excited about this new life that you're talking to me about. Why wouldn't I want to choose this over this right side up world and kingdom? Jesus knows that if his disciples live this way, that it's going to be so radically different from the way that the world operates that they will be persecuted. It's a threat to the way the rest of the world operates. But he also knows that they're going to have to persevere. So he's not guaranteeing an easier life. He's not saying these values are so good that your life's going to get easier. He's instead saying that you'll have to persevere. But persevere for righteousness' sake. Not persevere on behalf of one of these other things that you're trying to do. Because we know what it's like to persevere for things that we want really badly. He's saying persevere, not for any of those things specifically, but for righteousness' sake. So who would want this? Weakness, rejection, sacrifice, exclusion, mourning, pain. Who would want this? Who would want a set of values that are completely the opposite of what everyone else around you wants and seems to be pretty happy to live for. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is saying that they will be satisfied. And this word satisfied, he translated, it's like to eat food and to be filled up, to be stuffed. This is like after Thanksgiving stuff. This is like I ate so much food and I'm never going to eat. I'm not going to eat for another three days. This is not like a bowl of grape nuts in, in the morning. This is like I am full and I am good. So what he's saying is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled up. You will be fully satisfied with what you receive from me in my kingdom. So much of all the other stuff that we want is hunger and thirst, things that we physically want. At the time that this is written, uh, people didn't have bank accounts with lots of money in them. People had lots of stuff. So your security was a question of how much food, how much insurance of some kind of drink you had the next day, not just today. How many animals you had, how big your family was, how much property you had, how much physical stuff you had. Because that's the only way that you could have wealth and know that tomorrow you're going to be taken care of like today. And so hunger, for, hunger and thirst for things was everything to people. Your life was devoted to trying to have the things that could give you a life where you were secure. For us today, hunger and thirst isn't just food and water. It's all of the money and all of the stuff that we need, that we want. There is nothing more important to so many of us than independence and self-sufficiency. The idea that I can take care of myself. I can plan and work because 
I'm hungering and thirsting constantly for the ability to be able to be satisfied with stuff, with what we eat and what we have. The goal is having enough to be okay. But what Jesus says here, it's a huge assurance to the disciples that are listening, all the other people, is if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be stuffed. You'll be so full, you're not going to be able to eat for a couple of days. Ultimately, this value of righteousness is what drives everything in the kingdom of God. I want him. And if you want him, then you will be filled up. But he doesn't just give this sort of plan, these sets of values and say, to start off with teaching you guys about this kingdom, I'm going to have to show you that your life is going to have to be flipped upside down and live that way. You're almost going to do what feels like the exact opposite of what everyone else is wanting to do. But he also gives them the ability to do that thing. Because the truth is, for a lot of us, you hear something like this, you're like, okay, fine, I will do that. And so you go and you try really hard. You try really hard to work at these things. I want to be somebody who, you know, is meek. I want to be somebody who hunger and thirst for the right things, not the wrong things. I want to be somebody who, you know, is... is is mourning somehow. I'm sad. I don't know what that's all about, but I'll try as hard as I can, right? I want to be poor in spirit. I want to be pure in heart. I want to be all these things. And you start trying to do that. You know, you come to church, you, you, know, you worship, and you hear something like this, and you're like really kind of fired up for it. You're like, yes, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And then you go try to do it for a while, and then you just get tired. You just get tired. You get exhausted. You're like, I can't, I can't do this. This is like, this is really hard. This is really painful. This is not any kind of a good life. And the reason you feel that way is because you're trying to do what every religious person has been trying to do since the beginning of people, which is, I'm going to take this list of things, and I'm going to try really hard to be disciplined and do them. And if I'm disciplined and I do the right things, then my life will go the way that it's supposed to go, which is still a pretty right-side-up way of looking at things. Because the way this kingdom works is that you don't have the power to do this stuff. The power to do this stuff is in Christ. The power to do this stuff comes from the king himself. And so every step of the way, you're supposed to be pointing back to him saying, like, he's the only one that has any power for me to do these things, to be transformed into a person who does these things. And so if my gaze isn't fixed on him, right, if my hope isn't in Christ, then I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'll get exasperated. I'll get exhausted. And so he offers, Jesus will go on to do this. He offers the power to actually live this way and do this thing. Not as some like bitter, negative, exhausted person trying to follow a set of rules better than the next person because you think it'll mean something good for you in the long run. But actually saying, I really believe that life is in Jesus. And in him, I would have the power to actually live totally differently. And everyone else around me seems to be living. Uh, a pastor, Tim Keller, he, he talks a lot about this idea of an upside-down kingdom and, and what it looks like. And one of the things that he says when he teaches on it is he says there's people who are poor in spirit and there's people who are middle class in spirit. Right? The, the poor in spirit are the people that are like, listen, I'm not going to accomplish anything, I can tell you right now. I don't have much. 
I've, I've been told my whole life that I'm not going to be able to achieve much or earn much or work too much, and nobody's going to be impressed. So I got nothing to offer. What do you have? Grace, mercy. Okay, good. Poor in spirit. I come to you, and I'm empty. You fill me up. You give me everything. But the middle class in spirit are a little bit better than that, right? The middle class in spirit are like, hey, listen, I've worked pretty hard, okay? Yeah, I have some opportunities, but I've worked hard. I've tried hard. I've had the right goals. I've had the right idea. I've had the right rules, and I've earned a lot for myself, right? I've pulled myself up by the bootstraps. I've, I've earned what I have, and so I deserve a decent life. I deserve a decent lifestyle, I deserve to be able to provide. I deserve to be able to have. I deserve these things in their mind, and that's okay. You know what I really hate, by the way, is people who don't deserve these things, who haven't worked as hard as me, who haven't tried as much as I have, who haven't overcome the things that I've overcome. Those poor people, right, in spirit. Because I'm a middle-class person in spirit, and I actually deserve the things that I have. See, the truth is that's obviously wrong. To approach God thinking, I mean, the, the older I get, the longer that I live, the more I realize that so much of what I have has nothing to do with my own efforts in my life, has nothing to do with me, you know, just like objectively overcoming things that other people haven't overcome or doing things other people haven't done. I've had so much opportunity. I've had so much provided for me. I've had circumstances that are many times so favorable for me that I have to acknowledge that I have been given so much. And that's the only way to really approach my life. So if we approach God as like a person who's middle class in the spirit, then uh, we will not receive the power to do this thing. We'll exhaust ourselves trying to do it and then feeling like we earn something from God. And there's nothing worse than a person who's bitter because they think God owes them something that he doesn't owe them and they're mad at him for not giving it to them. So this upside-down life requires a different kind of fuel, a different kind of power. This is why we say as a church, we're built in the gospel, we're standing on the gospel, we're rooted in the gospel. The gospel isn't just something that helped me a while ago. The gospel is something I need every single day. Why? Because every day I need the truth of the fact that Jesus actually died for me and is the only way that I can approach the Father. He's the only way that I can take a single step in this new life that offers real satisfaction and assurance. And so what comes from this? What is the result of a life that has lived this way? What would it look like for a person to live this completely flipped over life? Because it would obviously look different than a person who's living with some other set of values, some other set of goals in mind. The life that results in this, there's, there's three things about it. Of course, there's three things. The first one is this. A life that's upside down is reckless. Life upside down is ultimately lived more recklessly than a life that is right side up. And I don't mean that in the bad kind of reckless. I mean that in the good kind of reckless. It is a life that is filled with decisions and actions that say, I can't count on and depend on myself, and that's not what my life is about. My life is about letting go and giving over and doing things that if the king of this kingdom doesn't show up, then it'll be a mess. Why don't we show mercy to other people? Because it's too messy and it's too risky to show mercy to other people. When someone has legitimately done something wrong... And our society says that, like, people have to, like, pay for what they do wrong. 
then the moment that you decide to show mercy on another person, you have just made this situation really messy. You know, how do I do it, right? I mean, I want to. I want to be merciful, but, you know, I don't want to just let somebody walk all over me. I think it's important that people learn their lesson. I think it's important that people pay for the things they've done. I think it's important that people live by the rules that I live by because it helped me so much because I've earned everything that I have because I'm so awesome. To actually show mercy to somebody ultimately is a pretty reckless endeavor. And it can kind of make things messy. But the, Jesus doesn't seem to say, you know, show people mercy unless it's just going to be like a mess. Then, you know, lock them up. They probably need it. They'll thank you for it afterwards. Why aren't we meek most of the time? We're not meek because we believe that we have to stand up for ourselves. We believe that we have to defend ourselves. We believe that we have to convince people of our worth. We believe that we have to represent ourselves more than anyone else. To not do so would be a mess. It would be reckless. If I don't defend myself, if I don't explain myself, if I don't speak up for myself, if I don't live uh, trying to further myself over anyone else, then what in the world is going to happen in my life? That sounds like a mess. That's a pretty reckless way of living. Why aren't we peacemakers? Because a peacemaker is a person who, instead of looking for an enemy that we can deal with and punish and change, wants to bring peace. And one of the fundamental things that we know in our society is that like nothing unites us more than a common enemy, than someone to be against. How far is a peacemaker going to get us? Yeah, peace is all good, all well and good, but, right, we've still got to deal with this thing and this person and this problem and this situation that we're dealing with. To hunger and thirst for things other than righteousness is pretty responsible, right? To, to say like, I need money, I need to save it, I need to put it away, I need food, I need to save it, I need to put it away, I need things, my family needs things, I need to save those things, I need to put those things away, right? To hunger and thirst for something else, which means to actually care about righteousness more than like being continually uh, fixated on the things that I need in order to live my life and to live it tomorrow, not just today. In order to have all of those things, uh, if I was going to stop worrying about those things, if I was going to stop caring about those things as much as other stuff that I'm being told in this upside-down kingdom I care about, that would be reckless. How would I have money? How would I have things? If I actually live this way, that would be a mess. Well, this upside-down life, first and foremost, looks that way. It's going to be a reckless way of living. You will not be able to defend it as the most responsible, as the safest. The other thing that it will be is it will be resilient. It, it, it will, a life that says, when Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are those who suffer, what Jesus is talking about is he's saying that in this kingdom of mine, that Suffering can only do one thing to you, and it is this. It can show you more of who you really are and who I really am. That ultimately, you cannot be robbed of anything that truly matters in my kingdom. Those things are permanent and forever. What's so hard about suffering is that it shows us who we are. The more things 
that are cleared away and that are lost. And we hate to admit this, but it's true. The more clearly we see who we really are and the more clearly we see who God is or at least who we believe that he is. I can say God is something right now, but when my life falls apart, what do I say about God then? What do I say about, what do I see in myself then? When we were living in Northern California, there was a big drought, there was like always a drought, and uh, Folsom Lake, which is right next to where we live, basically got emptied out one year of water. And it was the first time in so long that there had been no water in Folsom, and they found all kinds of stuff at the bottom of that lake. They found bodies, they found like dead animal bodies and people bodies, they found like historical ruins, like pioneer like settlement things, uh, like a stone building at the bottom of the lake. They found wagon wheels. I think it was like Egyptian chariots and stuff like that. I don't know. They're doing, a, they're doing a DVD or something on that. It's coming out. But they found like all kinds of crazy stuff down there. And much of this stuff was basically the, the sort of, historically speaking, much of this stuff was sort of uh, the history of Folsom itself, a history that had been preserved and hadn't been seen since everything else gets kind of pulled away and the water gets washed away from it. The person who lives their life this way, they will ultimately be resilient. Their life will be resilient. It will be able to withstand so much more than the life that is lived right side up. Why? Because this right side up life, when suffering comes and pain comes, it has the power to take everything away from you. And that is terrifying. If you are not living in this upside down life, this upside-down kingdom, you should be worried about suffering. You should be worried about pain because it can take away the things that you're investing yourself in right now. Why are we so anxious? Why are we so afraid? Because we don't want to lose things that matter to us. And many of us are afraid because we know that what matters to us is the things that we can lose and not the things that we can't lose like my new truck. Gosh, I just thought about that. <laughs> so sad. It's good, though. It won't become an idol in my life. Life upside down is ultimately humble. It looks like humility. It doesn't look like arrogance and pridefulness. A life that is upside down is ultimately one that is characterized by a humble attitude that says, other people go before me. There's no better description of what humility is than what you read about in Philippians 2. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is to take the interests of other people and to put those things before our own. It is to say, you go before me. Uh, we read also in this passage in Philippians, Jesus is the example of humility because he, being God and the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something that could be grasped, but he gave that up. He emptied himself to take on the likeness of man for us. What did Jesus do as a part of the kingdom of God? He emptied himself out. What does a person who is living this life do with their life? They empty themselves out. The normal right-side-up way of living 
is to do everything you can as the center of your life, to be self-obsessed, to think about your own self-interest, and to ultimately fill up your life with as much as you can, because no one else is going to do it for you. To be a part of this life that is upside down is to empty yourself out. And Jesus says that somehow that will ultimately be more satisfying than a life that is spent trying to fill yourself up. We were teaching our kids the other morning at breakfast. I was teaching my son about being self-absorbed. And um, I drew like a, a diagram on a piece of paper of like of a solar system. And the center of the solar system was him. And I was like, this is your life, right? Like everything that exists revolves around you sometimes. I think it was like we were talking about someone's birthday and they were gonna do something and it was like, I wanna do that thing, right? And in your world, all that matters in any given moment is like, is like me and my experience and what, what's going on for me. And as much as like that sounds ridiculous to us, a life that is lived outside of the kingdom of God is a life that ultimately is about ourselves. It is a life that says, all that I have is this. And so my life will be devoted to this thing. I will pour everything I can into it. I will help the people close to me do the same thing. And I will show them in everything that I do that things are about them too. The thing about a kingdom and its values is that they reflect the king. They reflect the life in that kingdom. It makes no sense that we would claim to be a part of a kingdom with God as the head and then spend all of our time trying to be as self-sufficient as we can. Defending ourselves, gathering for ourselves, living as though there's no one that we can count on but ourselves. What we are actually to do is when we see these values, what they show us is they say, whoever is in charge of this kingdom must be really, really powerful. Because their subjects, the people that live with them, can give and let go and do so much without fearfulness, knowing that ultimately their king is going to take care of them because of the kind of kingdom that they're a part of. If we really believe that, then we could live this way. Our life would be completely different from the lives of those around us. They would look at our lives and they would see that it's different from the lives of those around us. We wouldn't expect that it's going to be the same. But there's nothing more miserable than thinking that you're doing this and not doing it. Than just trying to exhaust yourself by doing all the hard things that you can, but finding no satisfaction or fulfillment in that like Jesus promises. As we go through this series and as we look at the different things in life. Next week, we're going to look at church upside down and what that means. And we're going to look at everything from money upside down to relationships upside down, even to death upside down and what that looks like. We're going to see that it ultimately always comes down to values. It comes down to the things that we believe ought to direct our life. And those are the things that we show other people ought to, that ought to direct theirs.